You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. So I want to start out today by directing your attention to wealthformula.com, where you can sign up for the weekly wealth widget. So a lot of you who have been listening to the show for a while know that this is a weekly newsletter. I don't even want to call it a newsletter, but it's a little morsel of financial education every week just to gradually increase your financial IQ. I mean, listen, some of you probably know all this stuff and you just delete it real quick, but that's okay. I would encourage you to go ahead and read through them. There's some topics that you might not know as well as you thought you did. In fact, I was just reading through some of the things that I wrote about three, four years ago, just on a blog. And actually some of this stuff I had to revise because I disagreed with myself. So over time, you know, you learn more and more And it's important to continuously work on that financial IQ because that is one of your major assets going forward to your financial future. So again, go to wealthformula.com and sign up for weekly wealth widget. Also on wealthformula.com, obviously, uh, you can download a free copy of my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. This was initially on Amazon, was an international bestseller, and you know it's still on Amazon, so you can pay for it, but you don't have to. You can just go to wealthformula.com and go ahead and download the PDF on the site. So it's up to you. If you want to pay me, that's cool too. Now, on with today's topics. Now, one of the things, you know, speaking of all these things that we just talked about, it's important to remember When I have people on this show, for the most part, it is uh, purely for educational purposes. You know, I want to expose you to asset classes and funds and so on and so forth that hopefully open a new way for you to think. However, I want to make sure that you understand that I'm not, you know, endorsing those particular offerings. I mean, I might tell you if I've invested in something, I might say something, but it doesn't mean that you should or that, you know, it's, it's somehow an endorsement. And to be clear, I really do my best to only allow people on this show and even the sponsors who that I have vetted to some degree and, you know, either know them or I know someone that I know that trusts them or they have a very good reputation in my network, et cetera, et cetera. However, even if I personally trust someone and they are trustworthy, it doesn't mean I necessarily like the deal. I mean, that's a completely situation in and of itself. I mean, what I mean by that is, you know, somebody might be very honest and, you know, have a great business, but I may not, for whatever reason, it may not fit into my personal investment philosophy. So I don't want you to interpret anything that is said on the show as saying that I'm investing in this, unless I straight out say it, which I do sometimes, but... You know, if you're in my investor club, the accredited investor group, which you can also sign up for, by the way, on wealthformula.com, if you have not, I'm glad to give you my personal opinion. Again, it's just my opinion again, and then it's not an endorsement. If you are an accredited investor, meaning you make $200,000 per year or have a net worth of a million dollars outside of your personal residence, you really need to get an investor club. I mean, This is not just about offerings, right? This isn't, you know, give money to buck group. That's not what this is. It's really an opportunity to join a network of accredited investors. You know, we're looking at a variety of things. We've had offerings on there from, you know, a number of people, including offerings for, you know, ATM machines or mobile home parks. Obviously, you know, we've talked about my hotel development in Belize, which by the way, is still open. So come on, guys. I mean, this is a great opportunity. If you want to talk about it more, go on a credit. Join the accredited investor group. 
And then we had an oil and gas opportunity. And and again, these are not things that I'm making money off of, folks. I mean, these are things that I'm sharing with you as things that you know are educational for the most part and just exposing you to them. So I don't know why you wouldn't join accredited investor group if you are one. You can do that at wealthformula.com. The other thing that we do there, though, which is really cool, is we're starting to have some educational stuff. Like today, we are having a, and this will have been a week ago for those of you who are listening now, probably, but today we're having a world-famous asset protection attorney give us, you know, sort of an accredited investor's version of asset protection, and we call it untouchable asset protection, but it's only available to my accredited investor group. So, We're going to have lots of things like that. We're going to have tax mitigation strategies, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't mean to plug this too hard, but I don't understand why more of you don't join. We do have 300 some people, but I know there's more of you out there who just need to push the button and do it. And we'd love to have you. Now, as far as myself as a passive investor, you know, a lot of people ask me about this, you know, how do I know who to trust with? And they say, you know, I looked at this syndication, this private placement memorandum, and it says all these things about risks and it sounds really scary and I can't invest in that. Well, first of all, folks, I mean, listen, if you're investing in a private placement and you have a private placement memorandum, if you don't see language in there that says that it's very risky that there is risk to all investments, et cetera, then turn around and run because that is essentially a requirement for a private placement. If you go back in past episodes, go listen to Mauricio Raul, who is one of you know, my securities attorney, and he'll tell you, listen, at the end of the day, you don't invest in something because of the private placement memorandum. That's not what you do. I mean, that's like The private placement memorandum is basically a, for those of you who are in the medical field or familiar with it, it's a surgical consent, right? It's telling you that there are inherent risks in something. So you don't choose an asset or an investment because of the private placement memorandum. I mean, listen, you know, you might look at the executive summary, but the private placement memorandum, no one in the history of the world has chosen to invest in something because of the private placement memorandum. And, okay, the parallel here is nobody in the world has decided to go forward with surgery. I'm a surgeon. No one has said, you know, I I would love to get this problem fixed, and now I'm reading the surgical consent, and that's what I'm sold on. No, 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 no. You look at the deal, you look at the problem, you figure out everything else first, and then you go into the private placement, and uh, and then you understand that there are risks on things, and you sign off on it. My point is, folks, you got to understand this stuff, because otherwise, you're never going to invest in anything, which is problematic. People also ask me a lot about you know who to invest with. Again, going back to endorsements, I don't like to give endorsements, because obviously, if I do you know, you can come back to me and say, hey, you said, you know, this and and then it didn't work out. And the next thing you know, you don't like me anymore. But let me give you my own take on stuff on this. All right. First of all, as you know, I'm a believer in this idea of network based investing. What I mean by that is that if I stay within a group of people that I know and trust and I know that they have invested with somebody or, you know, there's at least there's sort of one degree of separation, maybe two degrees of separation that creates some accountability to that person. There's a better, better chance that I'm going to end up with a decent group right now. Even that's not a guarantee. 
I mean, listen, you just never know, right? So the goal for me in that first phase, in that idea of just investing within my network is try to the best of my ability to stay away from people who are prone to nefarious activity, right? That's what I'm trying to do. The rest of it, if I can at least convince myself that I have at least limited the risk of nefarious activity, that's about 75% of the battle because I can look at a deal myself and understand whether if the deal makes sense or not. So I think that's one of the major goals. Now, the other thing is when you're looking and you're listening to people, you know, the other problem is that it may not be just an issue of nefarious activity, but you can also sometimes look at a group and say, I don't think they have their priorities right. I mean, sometimes, you know, you can listen to what people say and you can read between the lines and understand what the intentions are, what the goals are, the mission is. What are they trying to do? What's their goal? Do they focus on investor returns and building a long-term company with happy clients? Or do they talk about how they want to get really big themselves, you know? I mean, the, the latter part is really alarming for me because, listen, there's nothing bad with having a big, big business. I mean, listen, you're talking to a guy who does have some big businesses, but it doesn't, big doesn't necessarily mean good. So say you're investing in real estate and you're looking as a passive investor. And if somebody's goal, really what they really want to do is just build a, you know, a billion dollar real estate empire. And they tell you that that's my goal. So what do you need to achieve it if your goal is to build a billion-dollar real estate empire? Well, you need a lot of, you need to buy a lot of real estate, and you need a lot of investor money. And even if the markets are like they are today, where it's pretty tight, you might stretch to make sure that you keep buying properties so that you can keep pace with your goal. Do you think that's good for investors? I don't. You know, I have to share one anecdote. So when I was on the Real Estate Guys Cruise, the uh, summit at sea, which again, love the Real Estate Guys, love the summit. You really ought to go. That said, I don't know if I can go next year. But the one interesting conversation I had was with uh, none other than Robert Kiyosaki. And we were talking about, you know, who do you invest with and all that sort of thing. And, you know, one of the things that we were talking about is that when people come at you with quote unquote deals and you just know they're desperate and they just have that look in their eye that I really need your money now, right? And Robert said that when he sees that, he turns around and runs the other way. He says, you can just see it in their eyes. And I know exactly what he's talking about because I have seen that myself. And listen, I think the point being that when people are desperate to make a deal work because they are in that phase of their career or their life, sometimes you have to be weary of that. You know, you have to understand that, you know, in situations like that, people might be more desperate to do a deal than say a guy like Ken McElroy, who's, you know, obviously one of the rich dad advisors. And Ken is just a phenomenal syndicator and has kept his investors happy for, you know, 30 years. I mean, I am such a big fan of Ken McElroy, but guess what? He's been out of the real estate market for over a year. Now, as much as he continues to make offers, I mean, it's not like he's just been sitting on the sidelines and he's still making offers. It's just that a lot of the deals that he knows will make his investors happy aren't there. You know, people are paying too much. And I know this personally because my team is getting outbid routinely as well. Now, that doesn't mean I'll stop trying. And it doesn't mean that there won't be something that comes to fruition soon enough. And when it does, I'll bring it to my investors and feel good about letting them participate. But I'm not going to push it, right? I'm not going to say, 
well, gosh, you only have, you know, so many deals or you got this and so on. So it's not a badge of honor, folks. This is people's money. This is real stuff. You got to take it seriously. I'm very turned off by people's braggadocia of the syndication business. I mean, everybody I know who's really good in this business is pretty humble. And I would just be careful, folks. So the point being, you know, don't be impressed with people who are doing a lot of deals right now. Be concerned. You know, and again, on the other hand, it doesn't mean that there's no deals in the market. There always is. And it depends on, you know, maybe you get something off market, you get something that is distressed, or maybe you just got lucky. Maybe you're looking in a niche that not everybody's looking at, you know. So the other extreme of this is something I also think is really important to think about. Okay. And that is while you're out there trying to deploy capital, I mean, don't get the chicken little syndrome either. I mean, if you see a deal and it's a good deal and, you know, you know what you're doing, don't be afraid to buy. Don't keep second guessing yourself. You know, that is I mean, when Ken McElroy was on the show several weeks ago, he talked about this. I mean, there are still opportunities. I mean, just because Ken is, you know, not finding a lot in the 300, 400 plus units doesn't mean that there's not some good opportunities in the 100 units, uh, maybe less. I mean, you might be just looking for a 20 unit apartment building or a 12-unit apartment building, et cetera. And guess what? There's no Chinese capital chasing those deals. So I think you still have a great opportunity. So don't be chicken little either. I mean, use your brain. I mean, every one of these properties has an advantage. And and one of the things I think is important about staying a little bit bigger is that, you know, some of those financials are more accurate the larger the asset because they're usually kept by a third-party property management company. In these kinds of assets, you have the benefit of financials. And as long as, you know, there's no nefarious activity on the financials, which I had experienced early on in my real estate career, they don't tend to lie. So that's one of the reasons that, you know, you probably want to stick with a a property that is currently managed by a third party property management group. But the point is to say there's a happy medium, right? I mean, in this market, the confident but conservative will prevail and there is opportunities. But if you sit on your hands and don't even try, you're going to miss out on something. Of course, this is not just a real estate show, but, you know, this is something that we, you know, obviously talk about a fair amount because it's a major asset class that we're interested in. The real estate market, though, right now in particular is confusing the heck out of even sophisticated investors because of really the unusual state of the economy and also because we're obviously at a certain place in the cycle And it's confusing. So who better to talk to about this than the chief economist at Fannie Mae, Doug Duncan? Well, we are lucky, folks, because in this week's episode of Wealth Formula Podcast, when we come back, we're going to speak to Doug Duncan. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is Doug Duncan. Now, Doug is Fannie Mae's senior vice president and chief economist. He's also responsible for providing forecasts, all forecasts, and analyzing the economy, housing, mortgage markets, all for Fannie Mae. Not surprisingly, then, he was named one of Bloomberg Business Week's 50 Most Powerful People in Real Estate. Now, Doug is Fannie Mae's source for information about forecasting for housing activity, demographics, overall economic activity, and mortgage market activity. So what all this means is that Doug is a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he's a great guy, too. We met him on the 
Summit at Sea and one of the more likable economists you'll ever meet. So welcome to Wealth Formula, Doug Duncan. Thanks for having me. So let's back up for a moment. The majority of my listeners are, as uh, we mentioned before starting the show, they're highly educated, you know, high paid professionals. They're doctors, they're engineers. You know, there are people who are very, very bright, but who really, you know, this is not the economy and investing. These are not things that were really part of their education. So for those of us who are sort of ignorant about stuff in the economy in general, tell us what exactly is Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac? Probably the easiest way to think about us is as a large insurance company. If you buy a house and you take out a mortgage to buy that house, it's very possible that the lender from whom you took the mortgage either packaged it with mortgages from other people, issued a bond backed by the payments on all those mortgages, and then asked us to guarantee that the payments would be forwarded on time and in total, and then the bond was bought by investors with that promise of ours, which is really kind of an insurance policy. That's probably the best way to think of us. We don't actually talk to borrowers ourselves. We talk to all the lenders who talk to the borrowers. So we're a little bit like that chip that you something or the little tag that you see on some computer screens, which says Intel inside. We're kind of in the background like Intel is where it provides the chips for the computers. That's a way to think about us. Yeah, and you're sort of like the ones who ultimately really control what the overall lending criteria are, aren't you? Because if a bank wants to ultimately sell this, I guess, to Fannie Mae, they're going to have to work into some parameters. Well, that's right. It's just like an insurance company. If you're going to take an insurance policy, they may want a physical from you to make sure what your current condition is in terms of health before they offer that insurance to you. So we do the same thing for mortgages. We will evaluate whether they were underwritten to a set of standards that we think both meet the needs of the borrower and control the risks relative to the price that's charged. And for a significant component of the mortgage industry, which does not have portfolios in which to hold those mortgages, we're the execution for them. So they're pretty anxious to meet our criteria. It's also the case that the size of mortgages that we guarantee or insure is limited by law. And there are lenders, banks in particular, who make loans to higher income households that take out mortgages above the limit at which we can offer that insurance. Mm, interesting. So what's the difference between, and then we're going to move on after this, but I'm just for background, what's the difference between Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? There's not really a lot of difference. It mainly it emanates from their timing of origin. Fannie Mae was founded in back in 1938, and in 1968 was actually divided into two companies. One became Ginnie Mae, which is a wholly owned company of the federal government, and the other was Fannie Mae. And then in 1970, Freddie Mac was created to provide a similar outlet for the thrift industry to have an insurance agency. And then after that, the rules governing both of our operations were pretty much unified. And so we're actually compete with one another. Uh -huh, got it. So 
for many reasons I wanted Doug on the show. But what's particularly interesting is his position as the chief economist at Fannie Mae. And we talk about real estate a lot on this show. So obviously having, you know, an eye on the economy with the perspective real estate is something that's very interesting to this audience. And so I met Doug on the Real Estate Guys Summit at Sea, which, you know, a number of people who listen to this show were on, who are familiar with it. And as many of you know, most of the people on that trip were not mainstream guys, you know. So Doug was not actually on the ship, but he did a talk for us before we got on the ship. And when he was going up there, everybody was thinking, wow, a a mainstream guy. (laughs) We don't see very many of those guys. And he got up there and everybody was thinking, well, okay, what is he going to tell us? He's going to tell us everything's great, right? Well, it didn't turn out that way. So anyway, Doug, tell us about where we are in the economy. Well, this is now the third longest economic expansion that we've ever had. And in about two years, it will become the longest if we continue to expand. The point being, all of them have ended. And just because it's late in the number of years or months that it has gone on doesn't mean it will end immediately. But risks are rising since all of them have eventually ended. So what are some of the things that we look at that suggest that this is late in the economic cycle. Uh, If you've been watching the auto sales numbers, uh, you saw two things going on in the auto industry. One, clearly auto sales have peaked. Now, the most recent month release was up just a little bit from the prior month, but it was still 3% below where auto sales were a year ago. And if you look at auto credit, what you'll see is banks have started tightening credit to autos because delinquencies have started to rise in the auto space. Now that's only one sector, but it's a pretty important sector. It was the first sector of the economy that started recovering once the recovery began. It's also the case that unemployment is now down to about 4.4% and typically that hits a trough. And then sometime in the not too distant future after that, we see a recession. So we're down below what the Federal Reserve thinks of as full employment, and the Federal Reserve has been tightening interest rates. Of the last 13 interest rate cycles where tightening was underway, 10 of them have ended in a recession. Well, that doesn't mean that the fact that the Fed is tightening in and of itself will generate a recession. But in only three instances out of those 13 cycles have they succeeded in creating a soft landing. There's a number of other indicators that you could point to that are evidence that we are late in the cycle and the probabilities of a recession are rising. That said, our forecast doesn't actually have a recession built into it. We just talk about it from the perspective of What's the probability that a recession could occur in this environment? And we have a view that that probability is greater than the market as a whole. I think the market as a whole thinks in the next 12 to 18 months, that's maybe a 15% chance of recession. In our view, in the next 12 to 18 months, it might be twice as high as that, maybe a one in three chance of a recession. We're not in the mainstream in that. And certainly that is, you won't pick that up in the rhetoric of the Fed as multiple 
members of the Federal Open Market Committee have been speaking, including Janet Yellen, the chair of the Federal Reserve Board, suggesting that even though the first quarter of this year was quite slow in growth, there's an expected rebound in the second quarter. And we expect some rebound, partly because inventories were drawn down significantly over the last couple of quarters. And we think that businesses will have to rebuild some of that inventory and that always adds to growth. But the big question is, will consumers continue to spend or increase the level of expenditures? We're not so sure that the rise in consumer savings isn't a view that they've become a little more conservative given some of that lateness of the cycle. Now, just curious on your end. I mean, I know it's hard to read some of the Fed members, et cetera, sometimes. Um, You know, I saw Ben Bernanke on uh, Fareed Zakaria GPS yesterday, one of these shows that I like watching. And uh, he was remarkably optimistic. And I was just thinking, well, gosh, you know, it seems to me like some of the things that we were talking about, which we'll get into in a minute, such as, you know, even though we've had GDP growth, it's been some of the more sluggish growth and income growth has not been good and and that sort of thing. Do you feel like there's a possibility that one of the reasons that we're increasing rates now is because there's an anticipation of a recession and you've got to have some dry powder and be able to actually decrease rates in response to that? Well, as we noted, none of the expansions have gone on forever. Right. Uh, So there's no question that part of the motive of the central bank is to get some room to maneuver in the event of another downturn. And certainly the Fed's forecast does not include a recession. So uh, I don't think there's any motive on their part to mislead the public of their view. So I think when they state their forecast expectations, uh, they're being straightforward about that view. Whether that's right or wrong is revealed over time. But I do believe a piece of what they're trying to do is get some room to maneuver. So we see them raising rates in June and again in September. And then they are the world's largest single investor in mortgage-backed securities. And they've started talking about the fact that they don't want to be in that position. And eventually we'll start shrinking that port of mortgage-backed securities, the market is likely to perceive that as tightening of financial conditions as well. So we think that will start in the December timeframe, and that is just a different form of tightening of monetary policy. You know, for lack of a better way to say this, it almost seems like there's this game of fiscal chicken, you know, where, <laughs> where you're trying to figure out, are you going to end up triggering? How far can you go in tightening before you actually are the ones who are causing the recession? Do you well, think- that's a great question. And those data points of the last 13 tightening cycles, 10 of them ending in recession suggests it's uncertain in the mind of the Fed how far they can go right. in their tightening. Now, one of the things that that they wrestle with just as does any other forecaster is that their responsibility is on the monetary policy side, but it has to be mindful of what's going on on the fiscal policy side, which is the agreements between the Congress and the White House on things like taxes and federal expenditures and regulation and all of those things. And right now, the uncertainty in the fiscal policy world 
is probably as high as it's been simply because the incoming administration of President Trump, first of all, is probably behind in terms of appointing people in decision-making positions uh, in the various executive agencies, and also is really unknown because there's no prior political history on which to judge things. So one of the things we've said to people is, and our theme for 2017, we have a theme each year just to kind of judge ourselves against and let people push against uh, with regard to understanding our view of the underlying activity in the economy. Our theme is, will policy change extend the expansion? So that last part, extending the expansion, is making note of the fact that this is now the third longest expansion we've ever had, and I talked about the risks. The first part, will policy changes extend that? Certainly there is policy change that's underway, but we've suggested that the nature, magnitude, and sequencing of that change is going to matter. Additionally, just because there's a Republican in the White House and a Republican majority in the Senate and the Republican majority in the House doesn't mean all those three R's are from the same alphabet. And you've already seen right, that right. in some of the legislative discussions. I want to go back a little bit to this idea of, you know, this third longest expansion, because there were some things that you talked about in your talk that I thought were really interesting, because, you know, a lot of people out there in the country are thinking to themselves, boy, it sure doesn't feel like the economy is great. It sure doesn't feel like we're in the third longest expansion. I mean, what exactly does it even mean? I mean, you're just, when we talk about GDP growth, how can it grow and so many people not feel like the economy is good? Well, it has to do with the distribution of income and the pace of income growth and the impact of policy on assets that are owned by households. So this expansion was the most beneficial to upper middle and upper income households, but very much not a benefit to middle and lower income households. So you can look that, you can see that if you subdivide between income categories or income groups, you'll see that the policy response to the crisis benefited higher income households relative to lower income households. We do a survey, a monthly survey of a thousand households. We started it in June of 2010. And with one month's exception between June of 2010 and this November election, in every instance, the people saying that the economy was on the wrong track exceeded the people saying that the economy was on the right track. So something on the order of 57% of households on average said the economy is on the wrong track, even though this is now the third longest expansion. So we warned people coming up to the election, we don't, we don't forecast political uh, results or, or events, but we did warn people that this is an indication that there is ferment in the public's view part of which may be holding back consumption because they're just concerned. First of all, they haven't seen their incomes grow as in past expansions. And second of all, they're concerned about the future in ways that might be unpredictable in terms of what they do in the ballot box. And certainly we saw all of the political pollsters be wrong on the outcome of the election. 
So that note on consumer sentiment to us uh, was validated by by that outcome. You know, it's funny because a lot of people, including me, consider the rise or have postulated that the rise of populism in the U.S. and 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 really around the rest of the world is sort of a product of an angry working class that you know isn't doing as well financially. I mean, do you think that what you're saying sort of backs that up in a way? I do. I think that's pretty clear. President Trump tapped into a set of voters who had not participated, feeling sort of marginalized, I believe, but not exclusively. That There was also a significant component of independent voters who maybe in the past had gone to the other side of the ticket that this time sided on this side of the ticket, partly because they didn't see a proposals for significant change uh, and were largely dissatisfied with the pace of progress in this particular expansion. So we'll see whether that's met with policy change. The founders made it difficult to pass legislation. We could see that in the first pass on the health care bill. That was a, a very difficult process. But one thing we've been reminding people is that the founders did intend it to be difficult to change our laws and constitution. And if you go back to the Reagan administration, which a lot of people suggest there are some parallels to it, it took six years. It took until 1986 for fundamental tax reform to to go through. There was a tax cut for stimulus purposes early in the administration, but tax reform didn't take place for six years in that administration. So These things will, from our perspective, take some time. Consequently, our forecast for 2017 isn't materially different from our forecast of 2016, just because our view is it will be late in the year, if then, that any significant uh, fiscal policy change takes place. If that takes place, let's suppose health care reform is passed and then a tax cut is put in place, I would expect the Federal Reserve to respond to that, their response will differ depending on whether they see it as potentially inflationary or not. Right, right. So what are your thoughts about this recent Trump tax plan? As business owners, of course, we're all excited. But from the economist's view, I mean, certainly one of the things that you had expressed some concern about was debt. There are conflicting goals to some degree. I do believe that We need fundamental tax reform. The U.S. corporate tax rate is the highest in the developed world. I believe reforming that is an imperative. It will stop the discussions of needing to regulatorily try to prevent people from moving their companies overseas or being acquired by overseas firms. That's simply a function of the tax code. I don't know of any business owners in the U.S. that would not prefer to stay in the United States given any other option as long as it was economically rational. So I think that's a first thing. The second thing is the, the discussion about whether or not that tax reform will be revenue neutral or perhaps actually generate enough economic activity to not only replace but expand revenue. That depends a lot on the nature of the tax reform, going back to my earlier comment about the nature, magnitude, and timing. 
So I think the idea would be to make the business sector more efficient by doing two things. One is uh, reforming taxes, and second, by improving the regulatory environment, reducing regulation, increasing business flexibility, and actually setting up conditions that are more supportive of entrepreneurial activities. So I think all of those things have positive economic benefits. The other question is whether it's important for that to be revenue neutral or whether the real issue is the willingness to take on the embedded growth path in our entitlements. And that's a function of dealing with the expenditures side of the equation. It's not clear to me that there is sufficient growth in incomes that we will be able to meet our obligations and entitlements, even if we were to raise taxes, because to some degree that will tamp down economic activity. So I think there are two different things there. One is we will eventually have to address, and the sooner the better, those entitlements which get to that debt question that you raised. So let's talk a little bit more about debt. And in your talk, I have in my notes, and correct me if I'm wrong, that our debt is about 105% of GDP now compared to 37% of GDP during the Reagan administration. Is that right? Yeah, it depends on how you measure things. You'll see the estimates of today's debt-to-GDP ranging from 80 to 105, depending on what you net against what. Even at the low end, the 80, there's a pretty strong consensus among economists that when you move past that, you reduce your fiscal flexibility and growth path, which then makes reform even more difficult. So the number that would correlate with the 80 is 37 in the Reagan administration. So it's there was a lot more flexibility then than there is today. Yeah. So can you explain that a little bit more? Because when you look at debt and these numbers are so big, and one of the mm-hmm. questions that, you know, as a non-economist comes to my head is, you know, why does it even matter? I mean, Of course it matters, but why does it matter? And, you know, can't you just ultimately just inflate all this debt away? (laughs) Well, (laughs) you could. It's hard to say whether you would get kind of economic activity that you would like if you started ramping up inflation. And, of course, inflation is the most cruel tax on the poor because they have very few options in their portfolio for adjusting. Higher income households have typically a portfolio of assets. Some of them are retirement funds. Some of them are their housing, all the various kinds of assets that they can hold that they can flex to accommodate some degree of inflation. But basically, inflation is a way of taking value away from investors. So that's going to be resisted one way or another. Certainly, but it doesn't, in some regards, so it seems to me, and again, this is me as the armchair economist, right? But it seems to me like when you look at how bad the problem is, we may not have a lot of other choices, right? Well, the question is, do we have the political will to make the difficult choices? So we can fix the entitlement programs, but it requires some difficult votes to get it done. The Social Security one is the easiest. Social Security in its original incarnation did not, the benefits did not kick in until an age which was set at the average expected lifespan of the recipient. 
So the and the retirement age has only been adjusted a little bit while the average expected life of the recipients has risen significantly. So right now, I think the average lifespan is of both men and women together. I think men might be 82 and women might be 84, but it's in the early 80s. But full Social Security with maximum benefits can be taken at the age of 70. When it was put in place, the average life expectancy was the same as the year at which you could start to draw. So there's been a significant mismatch, and the taxes to build the fund were never adjusted to account for that difference. Right. To so make Social Security solved, went from being effectively an insurance plan in the event yep. that you lived past when you should to actually yep. becoming part of a 20-year retirement plan. That's exactly <laughs> right. And that's not what it was. It, actuarially, it was never adjusted to that. But even, even so, the fix of Social Security is relatively easy. You could adjust the retirement age a few months at a time over a relatively short time period and make it solvent for another 75 years. That's actually not that difficult. It just takes the political will to do that. Right. The Medicare and Medicaid are another matter, and you're getting some of that in the healthcare debate. That's a more difficult discussion. But it's not impossible. It just takes the political will, and it takes the public to understand the magnitude of the problem and accept that if there's going to be significant economic growth, that there's going to have to be an accommodation on the debt side as well. So understanding the fact that there's not a lot of political will there. I mean, listen, I mean, as you kind of alluded to, inflation in some regards is the easiest thing for politicians to do, right? Because it's sort of a silent tax. It just sort of happens. Well, in the central bank, as you know, the Federal Reserve, the central bank has as a policy objective, 2% inflation. Right. It's an explicit intent to take 2% of your real income annually. Given that, and given the fact that, you know, there's this sort of political stasis, how do you see this thing ending? We've had some people, obviously, in this show, like Jim Rickards and stuff, who are very catastrophic about, you know, where this all ends. But I'm curious, as more of a, a mainstream person, let's just take the realities and your own opinion. How do you see this thing ending in the next five to 10 years? Well, you can look across the Atlantic Ocean at Europe and you can see that they've been able to kick the can down the road for a significant time period. You can go to the other side of the globe and look at Japan, which people have been waiting to implode for over 20 years. So there is an ability from a governance perspective to keep putting off the day of reckoning in various ways, which eventually will resolve. But I think the question in the U.S. is, when will we reach the point that it will dawn on people that all the obligations will not be met and when will, will, will we act on it from a governance perspective? I'm, I'm actually an optimist about our country. And I think when faced with difficult decisions, if you make your political stances based on polls, you're misunderstanding the American people. Americans of course, wouldn't like to do things painful, but if they respect the argument about what must be done, 
if you actually act and lead them, they follow. And uh, so I, I think the question is, will we develop the political will to lead Americans to reform uh, some of these, uh, some of the entitlements, which I would say that the poster child for what can happen is probably Illinois, where right now they're in a big battle about the constitutionality of some of the the uh, pension obligations. Uh, that will become a broad-based kind of a discussion on a number of other states going forward. Yeah, And I think if our national leadership actually leads in this discussion, I think you can actually get Americans to do what must be done. I think it was Churchill that said, you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they've tried all the other things. Well, yeah, that's right. And, and <laughs> you know, and along that same lines, too, you know, I mean, um, again, stealing from Jim Rickards here, but the idea sometimes that these kinds of changes, big changes, sometimes are easiest to happen in the middle of a crisis, right? So Naomi Klein's shock doctrine, you know, just moving things that are maybe not politically palatable at times when things are look really tough. And to me, it seems like sometimes that that's really what we're going to probably end up having is we're going to have a situation where it becomes very evident we have to act and that'll make it more likely that'll happen because then it becomes politically much easier to do. Yeah, I think there's some evidence of that. It doesn't always work that way, but I think there's some evidence of that. And we will move toward the bankruptcy of the Social Security the trust fund, and also of the medical funds uh, within the next decade. So that day will come when we'll be paying for some of those entitlements out of general revenue. And then that will force a discussion publicly about the allocation of resources. I could go on forever because I just love talking about this stuff, but I, I want to make sure we just cover a few topics that I know a lot of our listeners are really interested in. That's real estate. And obviously that's a big mm-hmm. part of your wheelhouse. So what do you see in terms of the real estate market over the next, say, two to three years? Well, like I said, our forecast doesn't include a recession. It includes slow growth, 2% growth. So we see it continuing to grind upwards. The big issue in residential real estate is supply. And the rate of production of all single-family homes and apartments is 250,000 to 350,000 under what current demographics would suggest. This is the reason you're seeing real house price appreciation running at four to five times the long-term average. So the demand side of the housing equation is pretty normal. The millennials, as we had predicted, are starting to buy houses. And the problem is that the level of single-family home production is now only up to the bottom of that production and the prior two recessions. So we're still well below normal in the production of housing units. So just to be clear, now that's, it's a, very interesting to me that, you know, obviously you've got two opposing forces here. You've got a potential recession because we're at the top of the cycle, but then we have a complete, you know, almost sort of diametrically posed demographic push, right? We're going to continue to push this real estate market forward just simply because we need housing, right? Mm-hmm. So does yep. that, um, does that in some way, do you think keep 
um, even in the event of a recession, potentially shield the real estate market? Yeah, I think one of the things that can be used as an argument against recession is, in fact, housing. Because even were we to enter a mild recession driven by other factors, maybe global trade or an oil price spike, or you can think of two or three other ideas that would lead to a recession, what's going to happen? The Fed's not going to raise interest rates. In fact, interest rates would fall. There would probably be some run-up in unemployment. Let's say unemployment goes from 4.5% to 7%. That means 93% of households are still working. In that case, some slowdown in the demand side of the market means price appreciation pressures will ease. So those households who are in a position to buy will find an improved environment in which to buy. Housing is likely to go through such a recession pretty well. Right. And actually support keeping the recession mild and accelerating into the expansion post-recession. So that's a scenario. If the scenario is that unemployment goes to 10%, then that will probably be different. That would be hard on housing, just as it would be on other sectors. Our view is that any recession is likely to be mild because we don't have the same excessive leverage conditions in the private sector that we had in the most recent downturn in the crisis. Mm-hmm. If we talk about a recession, say we're talking about a, in addition to a recession, say we're talking about a, a significant stock market correction, which, you know, a number of people, including some of the major traders out there are, are you know, shorting the S&P right now. What does a major stock market correction do to a real estate market and why? I don't know that those two things are highly correlated. Mm -hmm. A stock market correction to me would be more about whether people's expectations of growth prospects for the economy are ill-conditioned. I would say what you've got in the market today is some anticipation of that corporate tax cut change coming. Mm -hmm. So depending on whether you use the tax rates that are being proposed or the current tax rates, you'll get two different views on where the market is relative to where it should be. Real estate is more generally uh, captured by a real simple evaluation, which suggests that people have always lived in a building built on land somewhere in proximity to where they work in a building built on land. And that will probably always be true. Yeah. So there's a basic need that, has to be met for all households, uh, irrespective of where the stock market is. In general, do single-family home markets, do they correlate well with, say, larger, you know, 200-plus unit multifamily assets? Do they tend to correlate in terms of what happens to them value-wise? They operate on a couple of different planes, really. And there's a little misunderstanding about the distribution of rental properties over the long term. If you look at one to four unit rental properties, over the long run, they tend to be about 55% of all rental units in the country. So people tend to think, when you say rental, people tend to think of big apartment buildings. Yeah. But the apartment buildings with more than 50 units are actually only about 25% of all the rentals in the country. And then the five to 50 units is that piece that's in between. So 
the one to four is over the long run the the majority of uh, rental units in the United States. Of that, fifty five thirty is single family detached houses that fell in the run up to the crisis, and that really what has happened is that individual investors have been helping rebalance that back to the long-term average. It's always been the case that there have been many millions of single-family homes in the rental market. It's just that in the run-up to the crisis, there was this mindset that developed that single-family detached houses were owner-occupied almost exclusively. That simply was a wrong assumption. So multifamily, when we talk about larger assets, say specifically, even though they make up a much smaller component of rentals, do they tend to behave very differently than the smaller ones? Well, there is somewhat of a difference there because of the tax structure of many smaller, that is many investors in single family homes than the institutional investors who tend to own right. the apartment building. So there are some differences there. Yeah. They both correlate to the business cycle to some degree, maybe a little less in the single family rental than in the apartment rental. But it's usually the case that the rentals pick up speed as the economy is coming out of recession because those people who get reemployed then move into apartments. They typically move into apartments for a while before they move out to become owners. Obviously, some of them stay renters. Some people don't desire to own, but that's the rental cycle picks up earlier than the construction and ownership cycle. And my sense is that the single family detached rental component of apartments is more stable relative to that cycle than is the apartment Interesting. If we want to learn more, if people are listening to this and fascinated and want to learn more about what some of your forecasts and what you're thinking about the economy, how can we learn more? We have on the Fannie Mae website, we publish lots of data that comes from our national housing survey, which we do monthly. There's a standard set of reports. We put out a home purchase sentiment index, which is actually published on Bloomberg but it's also on the website. And then we do special research topics, like, for example, all the comments I was making about millennials. We've done a lot of work about what do millennials really want with regard to housing. turns out they're not that different from their parents or their grandparents. That's all available up there. We also survey lenders to see what are lenders' attitudes about things. We do special topics with those. Part of it is we wanted to see our lenders' and consumers aligned, or do they think differently about the same kinds of issues? So all that's up on the website, FannieMae.com. And if you can't find it, send a note to us and we'll connect you up to that. Our forecasts are all out on the website as well. Lots of information made available free. None of this costs you anything to get access to. And we love to hear from people who have questions or counterpoints on any of the things that we put out there because that's how we learn. So we're happy to hear from folks. This has been great, Doug, and thank you so much for your time today. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Now, I hope you enjoyed that show with Fannie Mae Chief Economist Doug Duncan. That's pretty cool, right? We got some uh, big hitters on this show these days, so that's uh, pretty exciting. 
Speaking of that, I have a special call to action to you folks this week. Now, I am not the type who usually gets on and starts saying, hey, I need you to you know, write reviews. I need you to do me a favor and do this or that. But listen, one of the things that helps us to get people like Doug and the high-level folks that we're getting are to make sure that the show, first of all, that we have a lot of listeners, and that, of course, is uh, happening by itself. But obviously, if you can spread the word on this, that would be really helpful. I mean, when I send out an email and you get an email about the show, I mean, send it to some people, let them know about it. That is definitely helpful. But the other thing that I really need you to do that I think would be very easy for you to do is to go to iTunes and write a review because that's something that I never asked for, but you know, it's certainly helpful. And the more evidence there is social evidence of our group and what we do and the impact and the number of listeners we have, et cetera, the the better people we're going to get. Now you're going to be amazed in the next few months at the continued level of guests that we're going to get on this show, because I think you know, we're already showing that we're high quality, that we are a show that's not just a big, you know, salesy thing and we're building a network. So, you know, if you enjoy the show, make sure you let your friends know and also go to iTunes and write a review for me. Okay. That said, I'm going to sign out for the week. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your